You are listening to The Rooted Podcast, a conversation advancing gospel-centered youth ministry. This session was recorded at the Rooted 2016 conference in San Diego, California. Registration is now open for our 2017 conference in Dallas. Our annual conference features great preaching, engaging biblical teaching, practical workshops, and sincere worship. It is great for anyone involved in ministry to youth, including parents. To learn more, visit www.rootedministry.com. I'm Dr. Whitworth. I'm a pediatric psychologist. I am very happy to meet all of y'all and to do this. And this is different from what I normally do. So I'm trying to pretend that y'all are a really giant family (laughs) so that I don't feel totally out of my comfort zone. And to help our friend out, I'm going to, he says to stay here. So I'm going to work on that too. And I don't have any pockets because there's some conspiracy theory about how women don't need pockets. (laughs) So, and then the other thing, you know, it's like, it's like we need a helper to get dressed. Like who, who put, like, I don't have arms that go back there, people. So um, I thought that we would start, I would tell you a little bit about myself um, personally and professionally and do a quick overview of what I hope to do today. And then I'm going to pass out like your worksheet handout thing and then we'll go from there. Okay. So I'm a pediatric psychologist. I work in Covington, Georgia, which is where I grew up. I'm married to Mark. We met in college. We have two kids, an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. My eight-year-old is a force of nature, like shoved into a little person's body. She's taught me more about like conflict management and my own emotional regulation than I ever really wanted to know, but I do now. And then my four-year-old like kind of gets to just ride her coattails and be happy and smile all of the time. I did my bachelor's in Wheaton College, which is a Christian school outside of Chicago. That's where I met Mark. Um, we have been married for almost 14 years. At this point, I'm always like, do I pretend I look really good for 52? Or do I confess I was a child bride? I don't know. <laughs> Y'all can decide. So um, I went to graduate school in Atlanta, and then I did my residency down in Miami at one of Miami's children's hospital and a clinic out there, which is also where I had my first child. And then promptly, as soon as my residency was over, I like hightailed it home to mama because I wanted backup. Um, We live in a old southern town where they don't really care about my degree. They want to know, am I a parent and do I go to church? Because that's how a lot of like rural psychology things work. And I tend to explain to, new therapists or people doing this, like the only real difference in a therapist with children and without children has nothing to do with knowledge or usefulness. It's just if you're a therapist without kids, you tend to be like, I can't believe that parent did that to them. What were they thinking? And then once you have kids, you're just like, oh man, I can't believe that kid's still alive. They would be (laughs) out if I was in charge. Um, I work inside a pediatrician's office and I kind of network with all the pediatricians in the small town area where we live and I really enjoy what I do so that's a bit about me next I'm going to talk through hold on a quick second here let me find out what I'm going to talk to you about let's see do you have any quick questions about me 
No? Okay, we're going to keep going. So what I want to do today is to talk with you about like when to refer, like when you really are just feeling like you're drowning and it's over your head and like this is out of my league and how to actually do that. And then I also want to kind of better equip you for what do you do when somebody comes in your office, like how to make you mini therapists. Always tell the parents that come in that I see myself as the consultant and them as the 24-7 therapist. So it's the same here today. I want to give you guys a little bit of a model for how to better therapize or disciple people in crisis. I also want, like, I'm betting that not a lot of you have been to therapy or psychologists or something like that, so I'm hoping by meeting me today that you can kind of experience, well, what are most therapists like? Because if you don't already know some, meet some, they're normally like the nicest friends that you'll ever have and you kind of need them in your back pocket. So um, hopefully like I'll make it less scary because a lot of people kind of get scared. Like, I don't know, like we're going to analyze you or I don't know what it is, but mental health has its own unfortunate stigmas. So um, and then I will really give you kind of a model for response as well as in like as fast as we possibly I possibly can, like give you a whole history of psychology so that you have that as a framework for human behavior. And then because I went to Wheaton College and obviously like I can't ever separate me from my faith and faith and learning I think ought to be integrated too, I am going to talk about psychology obviously within the context of faith and human behavior within the context of being made in the image of God. Okay? So um, I made like one of those boring handout outline things and then I started drooling because I fell asleep. It was so painfully boring. So then I went back and did something that entertained me, and I'm sorry if it's really hard to read. I can make a boring version for you later. I also don't totally know that I have enough, but I wanted to make a handout that was something that you could do with people when they came in your office or, or wherever you meet them over and over. So it's actually very easily reproducible as well. So instead of like seeing this as some high school handout throwback to 1995, I want you all to pretend it's like fancy New York Times gone retro. <laughs> so um, I'm going to like let y'all kind of pass some things out. I'll give you a chunk. And then some of these things, and I'll show you how to fold it best you can. And if, yeah, you, you might want to draw your own, and I end up with more. Here, do you guys need more this way? Okay, so it's like this because we're going to do projects together. So take it, if you will, like this, you know, like little envelope style kind of thing like that, and then press it down and voila. That, I hope, will keep us organized, okay? Is everybody good with that? Folding skills? Has everybody had one? Are there extras? I don't, yes, extras here. Does everybody have one? Y'all need to holler louder if you're missing one. All right. Yes. Okay. Great. Okay. So now you folded it all like this. I want, we're going to start right here. So open it right to this. Or at the very top, it says, behavior is an attempt to meet a need. I want y'all to all just accept that as a basic premise so that we can rock and roll through everything else. With that in mind, there you'll see a little graph right here where it says need and behavior. 
I think all of y'all probably have a specific behavior that someone has brought to you in the youth group, a specific problem um, of some of you, your youth, or else you can use your own life, whatever you want. I would like for you right here to go ahead and sketch out. What is a behavior that's happening in your youth group or in yourself that is not working? For example, somebody is cutting. That would be a behavior I would say not working. Drug use, not working. Screaming at their parents, not working. Those would all be examples. Um, if you would write that down, and if anybody wants to share, and that can kind of be our running example as we move, that would be very helpful. Yes, thank you. Mm. was uh, adopted into, she's African-American, was adopted mm -hmm. into a white family, and is um, now, because of her past with, is with a child, um, a very, very young child, she was adopted by the time she was four, but mm. now that she's a teenager, there's, she's been diagnosed with PTSD, there's mm -hmm. a lot of stuff coming out from her childhood she never knew yes. it until now, um, and is now, like I just got a phone call yesterday that they had to put her in the hospital overnight because she started having Absolutely. Wow. So we all have a lot of sympathy for you right now because that's very, very overwhelming. You just like listed like 12 behaviors that are not working in that family. That was that was really helpful. But I'm going to add to that. Like your 90% of your brain forms in the first three years of life. So if you have a difficult early childhood, like your brain's much more fried than the average human. So that makes things extra tricky, right? And then she also probably had trauma, and the fact that she was premature mean that everything good that was supposed to be happening in utero wasn't really happening for her. So her brain and natural kind of human learning skills are already subpar. And then you've added adoption, you've added some racial tension issues, and everything else, and that's a whole lot. So I'm gonna very quickly take a moment, jump to the middle, and breathe. <laughs> That was a lot. So, and, and I put this in the middle because you'll see this is the difference in like not working and working. The biggest part there is to breathe, take a breath. Both literally when you have a moment, right, you hear that and over. Take a breath. Okay, there's a physiological reason for that. And then I'm going to go ahead and add a spiritual dimension too, right? That's the Holy Spirit's work right there. The difference between not working and working is the Holy Spirit from a physiological perspective. Take a breath, okay? So the first thing that you want to do at, when people come to you with a problem is take a breath with them. As we go throughout this, I am wanting, I want to equip you all to fill out the rest of these sorts of things, or the, the rest of the four blocks here, okay? And this is what in your heads I want you to be able to reproduce um, as life goes on. So you can now flip to the middle where my doodles got carried away. Um, so here's my tree. I thought it was really interesting that somebody else was doing something about the Imago Dei and using a tree as their metaphor. So that was like, I thought that was just beautiful. Anyhow, I have the Imago Dei at the middle. And what that means is, you know, we are all made in the image of God. All around this tree is, is basically different human needs. All of these human needs, you could correlate to attributes of God or see them as, well, God made us in this image and this is why we have these needs. 
So I've placed the two down here, like understanding and identity. Like humans have a need to be understood, understand others. They have a need to have some sort of identity. Those are very foundational. As we go around this tree, we have like substance, protection, and affection. Those three are typically understood as needs that are met within the family. Okay, so like substance, just basic food, sleep, exercise, that sort of thing. Next, protection, safety, shelter, you know, having a home, and then affection. Do most of y'all think as parents or of your parents that part of their sort of family responsibility or parenting responsibility includes affection? Do you? Okay, good. A lot of people, that's where things get dropped off. Like parents are like, well, particularly I find with teenagers, their parents are getting frustrated and checked out then. And um, they're like, well, I fed them, I clothed them. What else do you want from me? Okay, this is what they want from you. And this is like where your affection needs to come from. A, a spooky psychology story that talks about how important this is that I want to stick in your head is there's this guy um, called Harlow who did all these experiments with monkeys. And what he found with these monkeys is he put them in cages. It was kind of, kind of unethical but useful for us. So, well, bless his heart, forgive his soul, move on. But he put all these monkeys in cages, and he basically like would take away their food, he'd take away their blankies, so on and so forth. And his experiments showed that when given the choice between like the food that, that came out and like the stuffed cozy blank blanky thing, they would always run to the blanky thing, not for their attachment to where their food came from. He also went on to show, like speaking of your scary case um, with the child who was abused in the early years of her life, he, he went on to show that even if when they started putting nails in those stuffed animals, that the, kid, that the baby monkeys would go back to them over and over again. So I want Harlow's monkey studies to be of some use to remind you of how essential affection is within the family context and encouraging parents, like, do that. Like, don't let that drop, okay? Um, and within that, do y'all are y'all familiar with like Gary Chapman's five love languages? Okay, so affection isn't just hugs; it's like gifts, quality time, acts of service, chores, things like that. Kids tend to appreciate least acts of service, and most things like give, gifts and affection. But that, those are just things that you can be mindful of when you're helping parents better connect with their kids. Okay. So then, as you go on, merrily around the tree. We have participation, which this would probably be like more like your civic duties, and that's very much like social needs. And then rest, creation, and freedom would all be more kind of individual needs. Um, but I, I, it's very helpful to see those in balance. Like rest is both rest is as important as creation or making things. And, and, okay, so. Um, the, and then at the bottom, like, the, have y'all heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs at all? Okay, so that's like where, you know, he did a lot of the work, and then this other guy did a, a lot more, and you kind of see them as all together and all needing to be in balance. So now take a moment, and whatever you scribbled on your behavior that's happening, I wonder if you could reflect a minute and think, what kind of need might they be trying to meet by that behavior? Is it a need to for autonomy? Is it a need for affection? Like, for example, if you had drugs, substance abuse, something like that, that's often a need for both like recreation, rest, and adventure, right? But maybe not the best way to get that need met. Does that make sense to everybody? 
We need to check in. Okay. <laughs> All right. So now that we've, we've gone with a little bit about that, we're going to do a quick overview of development. Okay? So you can flip down to this page. So I've listed out, like, um, this is Eric Erickson's basic, like, what, how do kids grow? And um, what, are they, what are they trying to learn or accomplish in each phase of their life? I would encourage you all, since probably most of the kids in their youth group are what, from ages like 6 to 18? Fair enough probably even like 12 to 18. So you guys are going to be focusing, or the kids in there are focusing on like fidelity and love, you know, industry versus inferiority. Like, am I good at something at school? Am I not good at something at school? Who am I? What's important to me? Who loves me and who doesn't love me? All of those then would be this needs of like participation and identity. One thing that I forgot to say with this too, understanding identity I think of is um, like church. Like church does this part, family does this part, this is more individual and that's more communal, okay? So um, I want you to understand and think not only like what need are they trying to meet, but what stage are they in developmentally? And how, how can you meet them there? Like what are they maybe trying to accomplish at that time? So now that we've done that, lastly I have like how do people learn? How do humans as a species tend to learn? Most commonly, the way they learn is through social learning, which would just be observation by modeling. You know that whole, it's not so what you say, it's what you do? Okay, that's because social learning is such a powerful thing. That's also the purpose of like the cautionary tale. That would be part of social learning. And then we have operant conditioning. And that's just kind of sorts of things that maybe don't have intrinsic value to us, but they do have extrinsic value. So for example, I love connecting with people and helping them find better ways to make their lives work. I would do therapy for free, except for I hate billing, and I kind of hate getting dressed every day. So since they make me put on real clothes, like get out of my pajamas, leave my house, and tell me I have to be somewhere at a certain time, deal with insurance and billing, I'm going to need some money for that. That money coming in increases my likelihood of getting dressed again the next day and dealing with the pain of insurance the next day. So in operant conditioning, the money would be considered an increaser or a reinforcer, okay? Um, now, for example, if you're speeding along a highway and there's posted speed limits, the speed limits would be part of social learning, right? Because it says things like it gives you a model or don't go over this. And then when you get a ticket, that would be part of operant conditioning and it would hopefully decrease the likelihood you're going to speed again there, okay? And then we have like what is called insight and intuition, and that's just because like humans are super complicated and we really don't know that much about ourselves yet, but sometimes people spontaneously figure things out or learn something, okay? I don't, we don't know how that happens, so I can't really help you with that part of learning, but anyway, it exists. So, and then, then like the main psychologists that have done work with this social learning theory is um, Bandura, and then operant conditioning is Skinner. You guys can, I try to just like do simple stuff that you could Google later if you wanted more resources. Okay, look, we've done all of psychology, and I don't even know how long this is, 1128. <laughs> you can, I don't know, I wish I had like a sticker and you could pretend it was your degree. You've learned so much. Do you have any questions? Do you want me to stop there and like just send you all on your way? No, okay. Just checking. Okay, so now we're going to go to probably some of what maybe you all came for, which is now what? Like, how do we actually do something about this, right? So what I'm going to be using is called emotion coaching, which this is 
really just like a mixture of understanding, well, what are human needs, how do we learn, and how can we help promote learning? I very much see emotion coaching as um, just a form of discipleship. And it doesn't, it, it's just as useful when your friend comes to you saying that they've had a bad day as when your child comes to you flipping out with a tantrum, as when the parents of your, what, 16-year-old? 16-year-old come falling apart, and the 16-year-old herself is falling apart. So you can use this in all contexts. And it's basically summed up in this. I'm sorry, I have terrible handwriting, but it's symbolic. I feel like if I at least attempt to write something down. So understanding advice. Understanding always and forever precedes advice. If you do not understand what the problem is, your advice will be worthless. If people do not feel understood in the core of their being, they will not listen to your advice. And they will continue to tell you what the problem is over and over and over like you're in some huge fight until they feel understood. Okay? So here, just if you can just remember these things, this circle in your little life, then I will feel like I did my job. Um, and I want to, like, for, for me, a parable that really sums up Jesus engaging in the first emotion coaching would be the, how he responded to the woman at the well. Would someone please kind of paraphrase that story, some of what they saw happening there? Y'all are all pastors. Come on, help me. I'll do it. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. So, You're a treasure. Jesus and his disciples were traveling around, and they didn't have anything to eat, so Jesus was in Samaria, which is not necessarily a really friendly place for Jewish people to be, but his disciples went off to get food, and he was hanging out by the well. It's the middle of the day, which is not usually when people go to get water, but this woman comes up to get water from him, and they end up having this conversation, which was um, about, you know, he... He knew about her whole life, even though she didn't tell him anything about it. And she was asking him questions about um, where they should, uh, you know, like the differences in, in Sumerian and Jewish theology. And um, uh, he ends up telling her that he can offer her water, living water so she'll never be thirsty again. And she's completely shocked and she says, well, give me this water forever. And, and uh, he explains that he's that water and that he's the Messiah they've been waiting for. And um, then she goes back to her village, you know, the other people in the village, and tells them, you know, come meet this guy who's saying these amazing things and he told me everything I ever did in my life. And um, he ends up staying there for three days <laughs> and preaches to all of them that he is the living water they've been looking for. Does he shame her? No, he doesn't. He just very, he very clearly says, um, you know, he asks her, go get your husband, and mm-hmm. she says, mm-hmm. I don't have a husband, and he said, no, you don't have a husband, you've had five people, mm-hmm. you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is your husband. Mm-hmm. But he just says it very clearly. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's kind of obvious, there's that, like, working, not working. Right. There's an agreement that doesn't look like that's working very well for you, honey, but there's not, like, this shame or judgment that's attached to it. You can understand now forever, shame is dehabilitating to people. Right, and that from a spirit in a spiritual context is us understanding that like sin kind of rots us out, 
we can't fix it. But that's never like the point that Jesus brings, is it? It's always like, but it's already done. All God ever sees of us is that we are beloved. So we need to let that go because here's my other fun things is like, um, so shame is immobilizing or it freezes people. It can't, you, you can't grow. You're just stuck there. There's nothing that you can do. Whereas like whenever you have love, otherwise known as Jesus, that's when we can actually change, okay? So you have to kind of give people this love or start with this love in order for them to have the power to change. It's another, it's similar to this, like you have to, and they have to feel understood before you can give them advice, okay? So um, in, in this context, Jesus does a lot of listening and a lot of like, so now what? And gives her, supports her in finding her own ways out, okay? So that's like my... I'm pretending super cute little drawing of the well here just to give you a reminder of when did Jesus do this. So first off, it starts with observing emotions. This is kind of a basic social skill. Human thing, Jesus did at the well with her. Like, what's going on? How are you feeling? Why are you out here at the middle of the day? Right? So when someone comes in your office, let's go back to our 16-year-old who's having pseudo-seizures. What can we observe? Let's, we'll use our imaginations because we don't have her here. But let's observe, like, what would be some of the emotions that her parents are experiencing? Fear. Fear? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm sure they're very nervous. Keep going on. Let's do at least five. Faster, people. Guilt. Yes, absolutely. Such a huge parenting thing. Don't underestimate that. Overwhelmed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Confusion. Yes. Very confusing. That's probably pretty good. You're going to see it in their face. You're going to see it in their body. And you know what you can do? This whole observe emotions, you can start to reflect that back because they're probably too busy feeling their feelings to know what their feelings are, okay? So go ahead and you would observe their emotions. Next, connect. Connecting. This is the part. This is like the Jesus reaching out part. This is where you remind them that they are beloved of God, that they ha- they are made in the image of God and that they are precious because otherwise what happens? They drown in their guilt. They drown in their fear. They get bogged down in their confusion. Okay? So observe the emotions, first off. Secondly, connect with them, reminding them of the fact that they are beloved and in God's image. They're just listen to them. I bet the lady at the well actually probably talked Jesus' ear off. Um, There's probably a lot more to that story, but a lot of people just need to know that you're there, right? Understanding precedes advice. How do you gain understanding? Listen, listen, listen. It is truly that simple. I would add to this just one of these psychology facts. All positive emotions, when shared, increase. So... If you're happy, you have a celebration, you get happier. All negative emotions, when shared, decrease. If you're super sad and you tell your friend you're sad, the emotion just floats on along, okay? Which basically shows us that no matter if you're positive, negative emotions, you want to share your emotions, okay? Healthy ways, right? Um, so, So listen, spend as much time as they need in listening. You will know that you're not done listening if you start going into here and they keep telling you feelings or whatever else or 
spinning or whatever else like that, okay? So listen until they communicate in some way that they're ready to move on. Once they've done that, that's when you can do just very specifically name how you see the problem. So it's kind of, it's a way of validating and you know, put, make it concise and give it back to them. So for example, with this person, they might come in, it's like, it sounds like you're feeling really overwhelmed. I bet that is super scary to have your daughter having seizures. And then it's extra confusing when all of a sudden they're like, these aren't seizures. It's like, so just return that back to them. Name how it is that you see it. Now at that point you can pretty easily, if they're like, yes, you, you know, like, okay, good, we're on the same page. And that's when you might start going into this, which is the number five, start to find solutions. Okay, here's another thing about how you know when to move from like when you when you kind of go up the ladder. Your prefrontal cortex, this part right here, your frontal lobe area, is what does all of your like executive functioning, which is organization, thinking, like higher ordered processes. Your limbic system, um, your limbic system is back of the brain. That's more your emotions, fight or flight, so on and so forth. When people are in their limbic system, like when you're like flipping out emotionally, blood actually shuts down to your frontal lobe, okay? So it's not that they're like being ornery about ignoring your advice, it's when they're in their emotional limbic system stage, they can't hear it, they can't focus on it. This is another little like life hack tip. Like, this is the same for you. Are we, is there a fire alarm? Okay. So. Um, <laughs> If you are upset with someone and you're trying to work it out, you need to stop and calm down. If your pulse is over like 100, 120, you physiologically cannot be reasonable, which means you can't be creative, which means you can't come up with some sort of problem-solving solution that's at all useful, okay? So what do you need to do? Back to our handy-dandy little thing, you need to breathe. And you need to stay there breathing until you're actually ready to engage with your frontal lobe. So this last part, this number five, find solutions, is a frontal lobe process and it can be happening together, all right? The other reason that you kind of want to encourage people to find their own solutions and work through their own advice like find, is because you'll know if they're able to do that, that they've really finished with their limbic system. And does that make sense? Like push, push them to do that. Like they can't simultaneously be in both places. Okay. So, that's like the psychology of these sorts of things all shoved together really fast. To learn more about Gospel Centered Youth Ministry, please visit our website at www.rootedministry.com. Music has been provided by High Street Hymns. You can access their music at www. Hi, street hymns.com. Alleluia, Alleluia.